Sidewalks are outdoors. Most fountains are outdoors. Your classic swing set is outdoors. Vacant lots are comprised entirely of outdoors. Heck, streets are outdoors. Balconies are the best parts of buildings. Most rollerblading occurs in urban environments. I'm not against putting salt on ice. A flower in a window box doth also bloom pretty well. So many stars. Welcome now to Out of All Doors. Hello, and welcome to the 28th episode of Out of All Doors. I'm your host, Adam Drent, and you're listening to a podcast that we like to call Out of All Doors. I recently heard of a disdainful bunch of haters who call the show Out of All Dorks. But think about it. If we're out of all dorks, then that means there are no dorks remaining. So it's basically the same as calling us Strictly Non-Dorks, a title that doesn't represent the theme of our show in any way, but also isn't insulting, is in fact complimentary. Anyway, this month I got another letter from a listener. I'm going to read it and then respond to it very soon, but first let me take a brief moment to address the fact that the Popeyes in California don't offer mild and spicy blackened tenders. They offer tenders that are mild, or spicy, or blackened. And the blackened ones aren't as spicy as the spicy blackened tenders I was able to order in Nebraska without a problem. It's disappointing. Anyway, here's the email we got from the listener this month. Dear Out of All Doors, I am a huge fan of your podcast, but there is something I've been wanting to bring to your attention. Do you remember that moment in American education when people realized that the SAT was biased towards suburban-dwelling kids with questions like, if your estate employs 27 maids and your mother wants one-third of the maids to accompany you on your ski trip to Aspen, how many maids are there on the Learjet with you now? Well, I wonder if OOAD has reached a similar crossroads. What about inner-city dwellers with scant camping opportunities and scanter REI allowances? Would you do a segment exploring the urban outdoors? You could talk about parks, water and dry, rooftop gardening, and rat husbandry. Thanks for your consideration. Unantagonistically yours, LC. Well, LC, you raise many good points, especially your point about how standardized testing is a plot perpetrated by the elites to ensure that every student who passes through the public school system is molded into a compliant drone fit only for either working long, unfulfilling hours at a corporate job or occupying a cell in a for-profit prison. But aside from that, you're right in some other important ways. For example, we should use the show to explore some topics related to the urban outdoors, wherein we talk about water parks, dry parks, rooftop gardening, and rat husbandry. While I can't say for sure that exploring the urban outdoors will be a recurring segment on Out of All Doors, I can promise that this episode will explore all of those topics in one way or another. For example, the underappreciated nature segment, which has been an unmitigated disaster so far, is going to prominently feature rats, and I think there's a good chance that the husbandry thereof will come up. Also, what better place to tackle rooftop gardens than right here in the intro? Here are 10 major benefits of having a rooftop garden when you live in the city. Number one, snakes have to learn how to scale sheer vertical walls in order to hide themselves inside heads of lettuce and sink their poisonous fangs into the flesh of your hand when you reach down to tenderly pat the head of lettuce as if it were the real head of a real person and you were a compulsive head patter, which you may or may not actually be, I don't know. Number two, 
If the stock market crashes again and you want to throw yourself off the top of your building, you can eat a fresh, dirty carrot on the way down. Number three, your garden will have first dibs on all the best rain, and the basic ground-level gardens will have to settle for whatever's left. Number four, it justifies the extensive rototiller collection that your significant other viciously called impractical for someone who lives in a city. Number five, if burglars try to gain access to your building via the roof, the man-eating plants in the rooftop garden will eat them provided you're growing some man-eating plants up there. Number six, nothing makes a raw turnip barely tolerable like an unobstructed view of your city's skyline at sunset and a ton of salt. Number seven, You'll actually be happy when people track dirt into your apartment because you can just gather it up and that'll be that much less dirt that you'll have to carry all the way up from street level to your rooftop garden. Number eight, if you garden in the nude up there, perhaps a king or queen will catch sight of you from his or her palace veranda and conspire to have your spouse killed in battle so that he or she can then marry you. This is more of a warning than a benefit, especially considering the chances that a disapproving prophet will find out about it. Number nine, a rooftop garden means your dumb neighbor across the hall can't construct a rooftop putting green, bowling green, or lawnmower demonstration arena. And number ten, you can eat overwhelming quantities of free cucumbers for every meal from mid-May to early October instead of blowing hundreds of dollars on food you actually want, just like people who live in the country. CLC, dreams do come true. And let that be a lesson to the rest of you. If you ride into Out of All Doors, we'll make your dreams come true, provided your dreams are as easy to make come true as LC's are. But that's not even the full extent of the Urban Outdoors stuff in this episode, LC. Probably. I mean, I told you about the rat, but that segment's had its issues. But we're really trying to make it work this time. And I don't know about the rest of the segments. I haven't received or written most of them yet. But I'm pretty sure there'll be some more city stuff. If nothing else... The title of the episode is going to be Life in the Big City While Out of All Doors. That's my plan, anyway. Did I end up naming it that? You should know by the time you're hearing this. Maybe I didn't if I decided it was too long. Anyway, this is the end of the intro. Let's begin, shall we? The Five People You Meet at a Botanical Garden, as contributed by Matt Martin. Number one is the gardener, highly unwelcome guest who's been blacklisted from the botanical garden numerous times, but who always sneaks through by wearing minuscule disguises, such as glasses, false eyebrows, beehive wig, and nose putty. The gardener not only likes to weed plants he doesn't like, but he also switches genus and species placards and rearranges the lily pads in the pond display. What's more is that the gardener dumps whole metric tons of fertilizer onto the plants, many of which suffocate under the sheer weight of the defecate. The gardener, once removed from the facility, often slips back into the botanical garden as many as seven times a day, always with his wheelbarrow train of fertilizer hidden either beneath an oversized trench coat in a gigantic caterpillar costume or as a dragon in an elaborate Chinese New Year parade. Botanical garden employees are fond of exclaiming, Darn that garner! But he remains uncaught to this day. Number two is Talkboy 2. 
More a person you hear than meet, and more an ungodly cyborg than a person, Talkboy 2 is the failed boy robot designed by disreputable AI company Innoventionals Limited. After Talkboy 2's unveiling, in which the boy-shaped robot emerged from under his cloth only to scream in continual agony, having been designed to only feel human pain, Innoventionals quickly disowned the Roboy and hid him behind a large palm frond in the botanical gardens. To this day, his digitized shriek can be heard from all rooms in the botanical garden, but given Talkboy 2's position behind the frond, no one has yet located him. Number three is Divorcing Man. He's just... look, look, he, he hears you, he gets it, but he's just trying to find someplace quiet where he can have what's, oh, I don't know, only the worst phone call of his life. He can't do this in the office, obviously. So he has to come somewhere else, and anyhow, this garden place was here, and it's supposed to be a quiet place where a man can think and hear well enough to hear his wife ripping his heart out of his chest. Yes, yes, sorry, he'll try to be quieter. He sees the group of school children, yes, he just needs to find a place to cry. Divorcing man retreats to a corner, he curls into a fetal ball, he blows his nose on a leaf. Number four are the Antiflora Pamphleteers. This unyielding, inexhaustible group pickets the botanical gardens day and night, shouting against plants and arguing for a plant-free future, chanting, No more spores, and Photosynthesis stinks. Their garbled message often falls on deaf ears, as even passing non-visitors are indifferent to plants at worst, and botanical garden lifetime members find their message highly unwelcome. The pamphleteer's blown-up photographs of wilted flowers and uprooted stalks have caused significant controversy, but the city maintains the group's right to display them. And number five is the gnome. The small woodland troll has lived in the botanical garden since time immemorial and wishes with every fiber in his being to leave the garden if he could only find a way out. His likeness has been appropriated by the botanical garden staff as a recurring child-friendly motif on informational displays, a broad-based usage of his intellectual property he did not consent to. He tries to hide, but they're everywhere, these visitors, and they expect him to be sprightly and ecstatic every time they find him. And so he pretends again, pretending to be someone he isn't, pretending his home hasn't been invaded by these tourists, and he doesn't want to be here anymore. He just wants to be somewhere else, anywhere else, and each night when the overhead lights turn off, the gnome hides beneath a toadstool mushroom and cries the tears of the unjustly incarcerated. Gnome fact! Did you know that plants transport water and nutrients through tissues called xylem and phloem? Well, now you gnome! We clamber aboard the sightseeing bus and take our seats on the roof, clapping our hands as it begins its tour through the busy city blocks, surrounded on all sides by scrapers of the sky, buildings with more stories than a grown man has had birthdays, buildings with more windows than they have stories, because each story has as many windows as a grown woman has had vacations. The bus putters through traffic, towering over taxis, so we can look down and see the secret messages written on their roofs, such as, mention traffic for better rates. The pre-recorded tour guide points out a stoplight, a parking garage, and some scaffolding. 
Using our own powers of observation, we see a bronze statue of a bat riding a horse, an abstract mural clearly inspired by the winged mammal known as the bat, and a bridge over a river beneath which hang hundreds of bats, some of which yawn charmingly. There is also an office building within which, dimly, we see bats flying back and forth, doing no work at all, working toward only ends of their own, and our tour bus crashes into said building, coming to a stop in the lobby, surrounded by shattered glass, much of it tinkling down to the floor as we shake it out of our hair, and in the cases of the penitents and ascetics among us, out of our hair shirts. We have entered the battery. Name of business. Bats Bakery and Baking Supplies and Baking Lessons and Baking-themed Fine Art Prints. What it is. Well, it's all right there in the name. If you're still confused about what this business offers, then there's no way that further elaboration here is going to do anything except confuse you more. Roll of the Bat. Strictly a marketing device. The eponymous bat is prominently featured in the logo, but is unfortunately rendered as rather cartoonish and eager to please potential customers. Also, they imply that it's the bat who makes the baking-themed fine art prints, but no bat would ever paint a photorealistic picture of a blueberry muffin. Bat rating, 3 out of 10. Bats Bakery and Baking Supplies and Baking Lessons and Baking-themed fine art prints could raise their score a little bit here with a redesign of the bat and their logo to make it look more disdainful of customers like a real bat would be. Name of business, Bat Mobile. What it is. Now this one requires some explaining because everyone constantly mispronounces the name of this business as Batmobile, and they assume it's a mechanic or a car lot or something, but no, it's a mobile phone store. Batmobile, not Batmobile. It's a self-inflicted problem that actually seems intentional somehow, despite the owner's tearful pronunciation corrections in the local TV commercials. Roll of the Bat. The logo is a bat taking a stroll and talking on a cell phone. Bat rating. 1 out of 10. Not only would a bat never take a stroll and talk on a cell phone, the name of the store makes people think of Batman, not bats, which is an egregious misuse of the word bat. Name of business. Bat Be Gone. What it is. A business dedicated to ridding addicts, sellers, etc. of bats. Roll of the bat. Well, the whole business is trying to get rid of bats, and the logo is a sneering sociopath chasing a terrified bat out of an attic with a big net like an even worse version of a dog catcher. Bat rating. Negative 10 out of 10. The name is insipid and their goal is loathsome, but the consolation is that I'm sure they're entirely ineffective because their inferiority to and resulting envy of bats is plainly obvious. Which, that's the exact attitude you'd want if your plan was to have others pay you to fail to get the better of bats. May bats never be gone. Name of business, Mr. Bat's Hobby Hole. What it is. They sell model airplane glue and authentic leather pouches to keep your model airplane glue inside of and whatever else hobbyists buy. Roll of the bat. None, it just happens to be the last name of the guy who owns and operates the store. It's unclear if he even knows that there's a kind of animal that shares his last name. Bath rating. Zero out of ten. A blown opportunity born of ignorance is still a blown opportunity. Say what you will about the incorrect depictions of bats at Bats Bakery and Baking Supplies and Baking Lessons and Baking Themed Fine Art Prints and Bat Mobile. At least they recognized the inherent value of associating your business with bats in order to foster goodwill among potential customers. 
They may not have successfully acted on that impulse, but that doesn't change the fact that they were right to have the impulse. Mr. Bat never had the impulse, therefore 0 out of 10. Name of business, Mr. Bat's Hobby Cave. What it is. In terms of what they sell, it's exactly like Mr. Bat's Hobby Hole, except their newspaper ads claim they place more of an emphasis on model trains than model airplanes. Role of Bat. Even though his last name is spelled with two T's, owner and proprietor Mr. Bat has made the interior of his store to look like a cave. There are framed pictures of actual bats on the wall, and there are lifelike plastic bats hanging from the ceiling. Also, in all promotional materials, Mr. Bat himself is depicted as an actual bat wearing Mr. Bat's trademark sunglasses, which could be misconstrued as a reinforcement of the belief in the mythical blindness of bats. But if you know Mr. Bat, you know that's not what he means. Bat rating, 7 out of 10. Does a lot right, but those sunglasses on the bat are too easily misinterpreted despite Mr. Bat's good intentions. Name of business, Batty's Batteries. What it is, a battery warehouse. They sell batteries individually or in bulk, those are your only options. Roll of the bat. Batty's Batteries makes use of a mascot of a bat with rolling eyes and stars circling its head, strongly implying that the bat is insane. The implication is that the prices of the batteries are so cheap because the people who are running the business are crazy, which they want you to believe is for the customer's benefit. The main problem with the strategy is that the business is actually run as if according to the insane whims of a madman and not to the customer's benefit. Who wants to buy either one battery at a time or a whole wooden barrel full of batteries? No one. And even bats, who couldn't care less about the battery business, know that. Bat rating. One out of ten. It is not batty to run a business as poorly as Batty's Batteries runs theirs. Name of business. Lydia Crown's Emergency Bat Clinic. What it is. A veterinary clinic exclusively for sick or wounded bats. Role of the bat. Everything at Lydia Crown's Emergency Bat Clinic revolves around caring for sick or wounded bats. The illustrations of bats on the clinic's sign are childlike but respectful. Bat rating. One out of ten. Although her heart is in the right place, Lydia Crown is only six years old and she knows nothing about bat anatomy, medicine, or anything else that might aid one in one's attempts to care for sick or wounded bats. I cannot in good conscience recommend Lydia Crown's bat clinic to any bat. Maybe once she grows up and receives some veterinary education, Lydia's clinic will become something other than a house of horrors for unwell bats. But as of this report, bats should steer well clear, especially since Lydia often displays her lack of knowledge concerning bat health by assuming that all bats she sees are sick or injured and are resisting her attempts to heal them because their pain has rendered them unable to recognize help when it arrives. Name of business, bats for sale. What it is, two guys sitting in the bed of a pickup truck by the side of the road holding a sign claiming to sell bats. Roll of the bat. The bats are what's for sale. They have a crude outline of the Batman logo on their sign so you won't think they're selling baseball bats. Bat rating, zero out of 10. It'd be worse if they were actually selling bats, but they aren't. They don't have access to any bats. No one ever stops with the intention of buying a bat. And when I asked how much a bat would cost me, one of the men said $10, and the other man said, our bats aren't for sale. I pointed to the sign he was holding that clearly read, bats for sale, and he offered to fight me if I would simply name the time and place. I said, how about right here and right now? 
He agreed and said, wait, who am I fighting? Him, I said, pointing to the other guy, and they started scrabbling in the dirt, soon became exhausted and fell asleep. The bats swarmed to the front of the sightseeing bus and push it out of the lobby of their business building as we cheer. The fact that they can push while flying means they don't have to tread on the broken glass from the crash, which is good for them because they aren't wearing shoes. The force of the bat's final collective shove sends our sightseeing bus careening back into the street, across the street, and smashing into the foyer of another business building, this one full of a bunch of gaspers, screamers, and fainters in business attire. And all of their hands are filled with manila folders. And within those folders, paper documents. And on those paper documents, words and numbers printed there by printers. And the content of those words and numbers the phrase, Rob Peter to pay Paul, written over and over again, just like in The Shining when he writes, Ever untrod the moon shall be. But we don't discover any of that until well after we leave. The Battery. Third Parliament. I spent months gaining admittance to and then becoming the parliamentarian of Bird Parliament. The journey. Tired of being on the same level, miss having big time rushes, so I stopped taking all pills in every form, all of certain foods, all of certain drinks. First few days were what you would expect, unwiped eye goop, bedhead, living off of dandelions and croutons. When I found my cycle, I knew there was no saying no to myself. It was time for me to enter bird parliament. You see, that's not a process much like what you'd expect. While some species are select rulers by the shiniest coat, biggest promises, longest fangs, to become a member of bird parliament, one must get jumped in like a human street gang, proving loyalty in your servant's heart by remaining allegiant while taking wings to the eye, talons to the bottom, and pecks to the hand. Fortunately, your beast man, the saint, has lots of extra blood and the pain tolerance to match my eagerness, so in my mind I faced reasonable odds. My jump-in day came when I was out digging a hole to spy on beasts. I thought I was alone in the forest, but the birds waited until I stepped up my digging. From my knees, I was shoveling handful upon handful of soil, excavating it from the hole by flinging it backwards between my legs in a way like no beast has ever done. But my focus left me open. A fluttering frenzy of striated paralotes formed a cloud above my head so I could not see what was happening to my body. I heard wandering, whistling ducks call before one of my fingers bent backwards. I felt the familiar whack of a Eurasian widgeon wing on my shin. At one point, my bird cloud veil lifted just in time for me to see a duo of African black duck and American black duck clothesline me. <laughs> that particularly rang my bell because of my posture. The birds began parting and they left. 
I looked down, and I saw much of my extra blood was filling my half-dug hole. My face wasn't a smile, but it wasn't a scowl either. Common members of bird parliament must live among the citizenry as peer leaders. As such, I was not yet allowed in the elusive bird parliament meetings. Only leaders with titles got to go to those, and word got out that I wanted to take the macaroni penguin's job as parliamentarian. A band-rumped storm petrel delivered my invitation to the tryout. To reiterate Bird Parliament's commitment to servant leadership, Bird Parliament tryouts must be dressed terribly in a way no man nor beast would respect. A tricolored grebe and a least grebe stripped me nude and began shaving patches of my hair. A greater adjutant caked me in pink fleshy makeup. The buff-necked ibis dunked my hands in dye. The bare-faced ibis held powder on my face while I breathed, so it started my coughing fits. A zigzag heron drew a bad picture on my bottom. A lava heron tied a ribbon around my midriff, but it made it so tight so that it made my fat look real bad and obvious. Last of all, the Dalmatian pelican rubbed a foul-smelling cream all over my legs. And this might be obvious, but it was not that kind of foul-smelling cream. I waddled up to the entrance, coughing, gagging on my own leg stench, and still in pain from the other day. A pit shag started taping my big moment. The secretary bird's jaw dropped. When I entered the room, there were no bird servants, no sacred chambers, no juror's bench. There was a crowd of cool-looking, suavely-dressed birds and people, all of them laughing at me. Some were my exes, seeing me weave while nudely leaving wretched footprints at every step. What would you have done? I tried to suck my gut in while looking at the most attractive party attendees, but that made everyone laugh harder and everyone was getting all this on tape. Was this the test or was I getting tricked? After about an hour or so of this, nothing was really happening, so I left and went home to put some pants on. A few days later, there I was, proudly sitting at Burr Parliamentarian's desk. Birds love my jokes and get impressed when I flex. I have stories I would like to tell you about my time in bird parliament. Thank you for your patience as I was away from Adams out of all doors, but it was tough for me to get into bird parliament. Hello, Adam. Kim reporting in again. Since the last time I checked in, I've been home and getting my bearings since my time on the rails with the hobos. Once I got my napping back under control, and got myself back onto a regular sleeping cycle, I need to put the investigation on the back burner for a while, while I tried to get caught up on some bills. I would quit my job to spend time investigating this whole hermit mess you see, but... But fortunately I've been able to make some quick cash as a gin rummy gigolo, 
as it turns out, there are a lot of septuagenarians who really, really want a partner to play cards with, and they're willing to pay handsomely for the privilege. Once I got my finances back on track, I set out to take stock of my investigation and get back on the hermit hobo case. But before I could do that, I needed to run an errand, because my phone had gotten lost on the road, and I needed to replace it. The hobos had given me this crazy 87 Motorola cellular telephone that, you know, it looked like a World War II field phone, and I hadn't even tried to use it. But I decided I would use at least a call down to my phone provider so I could see about replacing my other one. But when I turned it on, I immediately heard voices. A lot of voices. I kept my mouth shut, and I just listened at first. It was all gibberish. But then, slowly, I realized I was recognizing words within the nonsense. Like, hobos, trains, fields, points, cones, scoring, hermits, wins, losses, boxcars, rails, gym, Canada, bark, chipmunks, and so on. It was the hobos. They were having some sort of coded conference call, and I guess the phone was preset to the conference line. I was rather enjoying the ridiculousness of all of this, and jotting down notes when I started to hear phrases that sobered me right up. Things like, we need to move now before they find out. Make sure you've got the goods. And most startling of all, those dirty hermits will never know what hit them. I mean, can you imagine, Adam? I was thinking they're less dirty than hermits. Really shocking stuff. Once the call was over, I was just looking at my notes, trying to figure out what I had just heard, and the Motorola rang again. And I was confident it would just be a call for, like, the previous owner or something. So I just decided to let it ring. And then it kept ringing and ringing. And then I decided, you know, I'm sick of this. I'm just going to pick it up. And you can imagine my surprise when Agent Scabies was on the other side of the line. I have no clue how he knew when I was home, or that I had this phone, or how they'd gotten the number for it, but they had my attention. If I wasn't spooked before, what they told me next certainly did. They told me they knew where I could find Professor Jim. Yeah, note to self, I'm gonna have to check my room for listening devices. Anyways, so he quickly told me an address, and then hung up. So before I knew it, I was off to the nearest train yard. But I wasn't going to catch a train, Adam. I was going to an address at the train yard. Turns out Professor Jim was right under my nose all along. Were the hobos deliberately leading me on a wild goose chase? Or were they just so ignorant that they really didn't know where he was? My money's on the ladder, honestly. And so I walked to the back of the train yard, and I saw through a big hole in the back fence, there's just a plain old house there with an attached metal shed. A regular old house, Adam. Not an old train car or shack or teepee or some other eccentric place just a house in a shed so as i walked up the steps i noticed words written in chalk above the door of the shed that read hobo school school was spelled as s-k-o-o-l so with a big eye roll and a sigh i knocked on the door and i was soon greeted by a man who looked remarkably like the comedian gallagher but with less chunks of watermelon in his hair. 
and a very ratty bow tie. I explained my situation and that in my search for information about the hermit and hobo conflicts, his fellow hobos had mentioned his name and sent me to him. He seemed delighted and he shook my hand firmly as he invited me in. He explained he was in the middle of a class, but that his students would love to meet me, so he led me into the shed and introduced me to seven of his students, who all just looked like hipsters with slightly less than the average number of earplugs and tattoos on the backs of their hands. My suspicions about that were confirmed when I learned that they were all paying their tuition by working as baristas at local coffee houses or at mega churches or some at the odd Lamborghini or Ducati dealership. One of the students he introduced to me as the prodigy, but when I asked about his exceptional abilities, they all looked at me like I was crazy because, as it turns out, it wasn't because he was an exceptional student, it was because it was a reference to an old band called The Prodigy. How ridiculous of me to think otherwise. Professor Jim was so excited to show me around this campus of his, as he called it, that I decided to just wait on the questions and just let him give me a tour. Ten minutes later, I'd seen all four corners of the shed and the latrines out back. Tour concluded, I asked what his curriculum was like. So his classes consist of oral tradition, which, as near as I can tell, is just sitting on bedrolls in the simulated boxcar area of the shed and telling stories. Advanced interaction with bodies in motion, which is where students learn to board moving trains by jumping on and off a skateboard as it rolled across the shed. Culinary scavenging and preparation, which is a lab class that takes place in the alley behind one of the local restaurants, where Professor Jim has apparently secured a dumpster for the students to practice in. Parasite Identification and Treatment, which is, it's license fleas, Adam. Just, it's a class about license fleas. Mobile Gaming, which is where the students all learn how to play Gin Rummy. Historic Character Research and Costuming, where they watch coming-of-age movies from the 1980s and take notes about fashion. Opportunistic Napping, training to just sleep when you can, pretty much. And, of course, Computer Technology Classes. At this point, it was, at this point, it was close to time for the students to head to work and for Professor Jim to start grading papers. So he invited me to come back tomorrow during his planning period and discuss my questions further. So I'll report in when I have more to tell you. But for now, things are just as ridiculous as we left them last time. Alright, listen, if you've listened to Out of All Doors in its entirety the last two months, then you've been treated to some excellent material. But, as is unfortunately common with this show, you've also been treated to some bad material. Now, usually when there's bad material on this show, it's someone else's fault. Grang, the ghost, Cousin Ben has had some especially bad moments, Jason, if there even is such a person... But if there has been one person you listeners have been able to rely on for strictly high-quality material, it's me, your host, Adam Drent. But, well, the underappreciated nature segment has tarnished my reputation. I'm fully aware of that. Once I re-listened to the first one, I thought, okay, this is bad, but I can fix this, I can try again, and it'll get better. But unfortunately, when I tried again, it didn't get better, it got much worse. How things went wrong, I can't really explain without getting into a lot of technical terminology that most of you would never understand, but suffice to say, I confused myself. 
Since I was playing all of the roles, I had difficulty keeping track of which role I was playing from line to line, especially as the roles started to pile up. And then when it was time to pitch shift the audio to differentiate the characters, that confusion was compounded. But I am not going to give up. This segment is worth doing, and it's worth doing right. So again, this month, I will be interviewing something from nature that doesn't receive the proper amount of appreciation from people. But I'm going to take steps to ensure that everything stays on course. First of all, I am putting a hard cap on the number of roles I will be playing in this segment. I will be playing two roles, and that's it. The interviewer and the underappreciated thing from nature. There will be no additional roles, and if, during the recording, I attempt to improvise one, that role will be ignored by the other roles that I'm playing and edited out. Secondly, for my own sake, I will be taking steps to ensure that I remember which role I'm playing while I'm playing it. More specifically, I will wear an entire costume for each role. So I will put on the full costume for the interviewer, ask a question, and then change into a full rat costume to answer. Well, okay, I guess I just let slip that what the underappreciated thing from nature is going to be this time, so I might as well just confirm that it's a rat because of LC's letter. Rats aren't appreciated in cities. Anyway, so I'll change into the rat costume to respond to the question, then I'll change back into the interviewer costume to ask the next question and so on. You might be wondering if I'll be changing into the complete costume even if it's only to say one word, and the answer is yes, because if I don't hold myself to that strict of a standard, then I might lose track of my roles again, which must not happen again. Also, thirdly, there will be no difference in audio between the interviewer and the rat. Both voices will be at the same pitch. This is to prevent errors in the editing where I might accidentally change the pitch of the wrong line, which I believe may have happened last time. Some of you might be saying, why not just look at the script while you're editing to make sure you've got the correct lines pitch shifted? Because there's no script, genius. So now you're probably wondering how you, the listeners, will be able to tell the interviewer from the rat since you won't be able to see the costumes or hear any difference in their two voices whatsoever. That is a problem I have anticipated and already solved. I will begin each line by describing which costume I'm wearing so that you can properly envision which character is saying the line as you hear it. And no, the characters will not be lying about which costumes they're wearing. If they were to lie about which costumes they were wearing, this whole segment would again fall into ruin. Also, for those of you listeners out there who are so constantly worried about guarding your precious time, don't worry, I will be editing out all of the time in which the actual changing of the costumes is taking place. I had initially considered just leaving it in because I thought that actually hearing the costumes being changed would really help clarify for the listeners that the next line they'd be hearing would be from a different character than the line they just heard. But I've been practicing changing from the interviewer costume to the rat costume and then from the rat costume back to the interviewer costume as quickly as I can. And so far, my fastest time for one change, that's from interviewer to rat only, is 18 minutes. And we simply cannot have 18 minutes of rustling clothes, struggling, cursing, crashing sounds, and so forth between every line of dialogue in the segment. That would be impractical. There's just no other way to say it. Highly impractical. I've done the math. Keep in mind that 18 minutes was my fastest time. My slowest time was over an hour, but there were some additional issues with that one. Anyway, let's just be very generous and assume that over the course of the segment, I tie my fastest time for every single change. 
and let's be very conservative and say that the interview itself only contains 12 lines of dialogue, six for each role. So you don't have to include the change before the segment starts or the change after the segment ends. So that leaves us with 11 changes of costume. If I left the audio of all those costume changes in and they all tied my fastest change time of all time at 18 minutes, the segment would be 198 minutes long, which is 3.3 hours, which would easily be our longest episode of all time, as well as our least listenable. And yes, I'm including the oral history of Seriously Books bonus episode when I say that. And that's two and a half hours of Squall, for heaven's sake. Also, keep in mind that that's only the amount of time that the audio of me changing would occupy in the segment. So it would probably even be a couple minutes longer once you add in the audio of the actual lines themselves. So ultimately, yes, I decided the wisest course of action would be to edit out all audio of me changing from the interviewer's costume to the rat's costume and vice versa. Anyway, I guess that about does it for the explanation of this segment, so maybe we should begin the proper introduction. A lot of people don't appreciate rats, but they should. Why? Well, we've got a rat, which will be played by me in a costume, and his voice will sound exactly like the interviewer's, who will also be played by me in a costume, here with us today, who will be telling us exactly why he should be more appreciated. But quickly, before we get to the interview, I should describe the two costumes I'll be wearing in my two roles for the interview. When I'm playing the role of the interviewer, I'll be wearing a three-piece gray corduroy suit from the 1970s, sort of like Carl Bernstein probably wore. I'll also be wearing one of those journalist hats with the little ticket sticking up that says press on it. I'll also be holding a small tape recorder with which I will actually be recording the conversation while also recording it with my computer. But since I'll only be recording with the tape recorder while I'm in the interviewer costume, the tape will only record the interviewer's questions and none of the rat's answers, which should not concern you because it's only a prop to grant my costume extra verisimilitude so that I feel more like an interviewer while I'm wearing it and don't accidentally think I'm in the rat role and start saying things the rat should say. When I'm in the rat costume, it's a little more complex and honestly, it's getting in and out of the rat costume that takes up most of the changing time. If I were just an interviewer interviewing another kind of man and just changing from one man's costume to another man's costume, I could probably trim the changing time down to a tidy seven or eight minutes, which would mean the segment, not including the actual lines, would only be 77 to 88 minutes long, which, while still long, would probably not warrant me bothering to edit out all the changing time. But, alas, there aren't any underappreciated things from nature that just wear man's clothes, so I'm stuck with the rat costume this time. Anyway, the rat costume covers me completely from head to toe except for my mouth so that my voice won't be muffled and the lines will be clear and audible. The costume is all yellow, and I'm aware that rats are mostly gray or brown or sometimes white or black, but this costume is yellow. Although not a conventional color for a rat, I don't think it will confuse me into thinking I'm an interviewer. The costume is comprised of 11 different pieces and is very lifelike except for the color, which I believe I mentioned is yellow. You might be wondering why I bought a yellow rat costume. Well, I didn't. I made it myself. You might be wondering why I made the rat costume yellow. Well, I made it in the pitch dark and you can't tell what color the material you're using to make a rat costume is just by feel. You have to be able to see to know what color the material you're using to make a rat costume is and I could not see. It was pitch black, complete darkness. When I finally did see what color the rat costume I had made was, I was disappointed, of course, but the show must go on. 
If it helps, I'll refrain from reminding you that the rat costume is yellow at the beginning of the rat's lines when I tell you that I'm wearing the rat costume so you know that it's the rat speaking. I'll simply say, I'm wearing the rat costume now, or something along those lines. And yes, the rat costume has whiskers. The whiskers are eight of the costume's eleven pieces, and each of them has to be affixed individually, which honestly, that's what takes most of the time when changing in or out of the rat suit, attaching or detaching each of those eight whiskers without breaking them or tearing the face. That's the part that results in most of the cursing, struggling sounds, and crashing, too. And when crashing, I have to be very careful not to crash onto the whiskers, which sometimes means having to accept pain to vulnerable parts of my body rather than damage the whiskers. But the whiskers are absolutely crucial to the costume, of course. Anyway, yes, so LC said we need to cover some outdoors stuff for city people. Rats are underappreciated by city people. Here's an interview of a rat as promised. Prepare to appreciate. So I'm wearing the costume of an interviewer right now, and I just have to say, Rat, thank you for joining us today. We're so happy to have you on Out of All Doors this month. I'm wearing the costume of a rat right now, the color of which isn't important, and thank you for having me, interviewer. I couldn't be happier to be here. I'm ready to let your listeners know all the ways they can increase their appreciation of rats, especially in urban settings. And, uh, I'm still wearing the rat costume, but I've been trying to get out of it for the last four hours, and I don't think it's going to happen. Six of the eight whiskers are broken, and I'm utterly exhausted. I'm just going to go to bed in the rat costume and try again to get out of it tomorrow. Maybe see if my girlfriend or someone can help me. So this is the end of the segment for this week. I hope it made you appreciate rats more. Uh, rats like me. Well, not yellow ones, but rats in general. Jasons, we've gathered from across the multiverse with one goal, bring Jason and Casey home. They've been missing in action since December 2016, so I'm about to power up the multi-multiverse portal hopper screening system and begin scanning the multiverse for our lost comrades. You all have your assignments. Are you ready? Sir, yes, yes sir! Keep vigilant, Jasons, for any sign of them. For all we know, they may be trying to communicate with us through the various wavelengths and frequencies that separate our worlds. Sir, I think I've got something. I can make out Jason's voice. It's coming in strong. From multiple worlds. There's some sort of feedback. Try tuning it. So if you say pajamas, and I say pajamas, I'll wear pajamas and give up pajamas. Well, in the vast infinitude of the multiverse, there would be an infinite number of worlds where Jason and Adam are at any given moment singing that song. And on another infinitude within an infinitude of worlds, Jason and Adam would be repeatedly singing that song for their entire lives. And there would be another infinitude in which 
They would sing it one fewer times than they did on that first infinitude, and another where they'd sing it two fewer times, but during the time they saved not singing, they'd travel through time to kill baby Hitler. And in another... Sir, you better get over here. What is it? We're picking something up. Uh, something, uh, unexpected. What is that? Come on, as a fellow Jason, I'm pretty sure you know exactly what that is. Wait, are we just picking up people, uh, being romantically, uh, intimate? No, not just people. Listen, you can hear the music. Hey, what's going on, guys? Look what we've got! Noise! Alright, switch it off. Start again. We need to find our boys. Oh, we can't do that, sir. Yeah, definitely not. Why's that? Oh, we'd never get it back. Yes, yeah, sir, we switch it off and we become the bunch of idiots who turned their back on free porn. Isn't it all pretty much free? Well, that's not really the point, sir. Alright, there's something very familiar about all of this. Maybe a residual deja vu experience from the infinitude of multiverse Jasons who have experienced this event in their lives already? No, it's a, uh... Maybe you've seen this one before. No! This! This is just a Friends episode. Chandler and Joey get free porn with their cable package. It's literally called the one with free porn. Sir, calm down, please. No! How can this be? Nothing makes sense anymore. Sir. First we disappear for three months. Nothing, just blackness. And you, sir. When I asked you about it, you said, we all were just oversaturated with Trump constantly filling our news feeds and overwhelmed with a debilitating malaise following the election that we'd all just stayed in bed all that time and tuned out so we wouldn't have to get in Facebook debates with our family and coworkers about stupid <laughs> like whether or not racism or science are real. Sir, I'm not finished, because you know what? I've figured it out. That's right, stop the podcast. You hear me? Stop the podcast and show yourself. I want to give you a piece of my mind. You think you can manipulate me? You think you can just play with me and then toss me in the closet, left in the dark, like a toy you became bored with? And then, oh, three months later, while reaching for something else in the closet, what's that? Oh, the old toy. And out of some sense of sentimentality, some sort of false obligation to it, you pull it up. Let's have a play, for old time's sake. And the best you can muster is a stolen Friends episode plot from 20 years ago? Huh? Don't you patronize me. Don't you dare patronize me. You show yourself now so I can tell you to your stupid, mediocre, condescending face. Come on. It's time to go now. Time to put aside all worldly things. Time for the last adventure. And the last adventure is me kicking your... Aye, you figured me out. It's me, Grant Morrison. I'm the evil mastermind behind the scenes. I'm the stout puppeteer for pulls the strings and make you jink. I'm your writer. Well, I can't beat up Grant Morrison. But come on, you're Grant Morrison and you're ripping off Friends scripts? Aye, well, it's not as easy as it looks to be a prolific genius, is it? Plus, I was taking a lot of drugs when I wrote this wee adventure, and now that I think about it, I was binging a lot of 90s sitcoms on a Netflix. The idea must have slipped into me subconscious. Yeah, okay, I like drugs too, so I get it. 
Of course you lock drugs. You came from my brain. Yeah, okay, but I still kind of want to punch you. Okay, but maybe you will nay if you feel bad for me. One of my cats died last year. Something, maybe a bane pinctured her lung. Pus built up in her lungs. Say it, she couldn't breathe. She suffered for four weeks and then died at Tavitz a couple of weeks after her third birthday. Her name was... Jason. Um, yeah, but wouldn't this all be more poignant if I were the actual Jason who listeners had followed through his and Casey's travels through the multiverse over the last couple of years? Come to think of it, shouldn't Casey be here? I mean, I'm a Jason, but technically I'm just a one-off character. But there have been many Jasons, and all Jasons are a body, as ye are a body with them, and all Casey's, and all Adam's, and all Lil Dollops, as ye all come from me. And anyway, like I said, I maybe have not been at my best of late when it comes to writing. I ain't a high time to revise. Besides, all folk in the business steal story ideas. So back off. Anyway, my doggy died. Pity me. Forget you want to punch me. And going home, forget we ever met. Hey, Jason? Hey, I forgot my key. Casey? Jason, hi. Anybody home? Hey, Jason, it's me, Adam. Casey, I must have been asleep. I thought... Oh, Casey, Adam, I had the most terrible dream. Jason, are you okay? Is something wrong? No, no. Nothing's wrong. Nothing's wrong. Nothing's wrong at all. Greg, we're recording, and I have to say you look quite pleased with yourself, which a more naive man might take as a sign that things are going well in your pursuit of the login information for the old Out of All Doors blog, but which I know is just a sign that you think things are going well in your pursuit of the login information, which usually means that things are actually going very poorly and you just don't realize it. Well, Drent, don't pat yourself on the back too hard, because I'm happy to say that in this particular case... Your hypothetical naive man is 100% correct, because the please look on my face is in fact a sign that I am very close to obtaining the login information. You see, Drent, I'm now actually in the employ of the Crow Chief. Huh. All right, well, I'm sure our listeners will forgive me for not immediately celebrating that news without hearing some further elaboration, but I am noticing that you're back in the same cyber cafe in Des Moines, so you're still in... In Mexico? Yes, I am. And I'm not one to say I told you so just because I happened to tell you so on a prior occasion. But I did tell you so, so I'm sure our listeners will forgive me for indulging in this opportunity to say I told you so by saying I told you so. Therefore, I told you so. All right, and what was it you told me?
that by connecting with the criminal underworld here in Mexico, I would find information about the Crow Chief that would lead me right to him. And that's exactly what happened. Wait, so those kids who were making you buy beer and snacks for them actually ended up knowing something about the Crow Chief? That's officially what you're telling me. Well, no, not exactly that. But it was through my association with the cartel that I was able to ascertain the whereabouts of the Crow Chief. Or, well, I was able to ascertain the whereabouts of where the Crow Chief was and the whereabouts of where he soon would be again, which are the same whereabouts. Actually, Dren, as it turns out, the Crow Chief is actually running the cartel for this entire region. All right, Greg. Uh, I'm sure most of this information is wrong, but you're going to have to back up so we can pinpoint exactly where you went off the rails. I mean, well, well you haven't been anywhere near rails in well over a year, but... Uh... So, so, you, so you're asking what's happened since last time that has me feeling so optimistic that you'll have access soon to the Out of All Doors blog, and in the very near future, I'll have my own segment on Out of All Doors, and I'll get to meet my son. Well, you're not getting your own segment, but yeah, tell me what's going on. Well, things were going pretty well with me in the cartel. I'd become a very trusted member, and my responsibilities were increasing in proportion with that trust. I was still purchasing snacks and beer, of course, but I was also buying weed from three different dealers, doing what I thought was the entire cartel's laundry at Cody's mom's house, letting the air out of Tyler's GameStop manager's car tires while Tyler was on the clock so his manager wouldn't suspect him, writing fake letters to the high school for Derek's younger brother, wherein I pretended to be a stepfather explaining why he'd been truant for over a week, and so on. All kinds of sensitive cartel operations. I was certain that they'd soon trust me enough to begin openly discussing even more top-secret cartel business in front of me, such as the whereabouts of the Crow Chief, but little did I know that I was even closer to finding out the whereabouts of the Crow Chief than I thought, and that it wouldn't be Cody or Tyler or Derek or even Warren who told me his whereabouts. Please stop saying whereabouts. You're, you're really overdoing it. So anyway, so one day I was back at the Siete Once, which is not actually what they call it here in Mexico. They just call it the 7-Eleven. But I still like to call it the Siete Once sometimes just to practice my Spanish in case I ever end up needing it here in Mexico. But anyway, I was there just doing a standard Mountain Dew and Cheetos run. Mountain Dew for the cartel and Cheetos for Teddy and Sammy, who unfortunately has been negatively influenced by Teddy and the cartel and has started to put on a few pounds. And while I was browsing through the bags of Cheetos for the oldest one, because Teddy prefers them stale, two rough-looking characters came into the store and started arguing with the owner. I couldn't tell what they were saying, but they slapped him a few times and then knocked over a few of his chip displays and shouted, Two more days! And then they stormed off. So when I went up to pay, I asked the owner what the conflict had been about, and he said those two guys were from the cartel and that they were there to collect his overdue protection fee. Well, when I heard that they were in the cartel too, I couldn't believe it. Here I thought that I'd already met everyone in the cartel. So I quickly paid the man and then rushed out of the store with my cartel supplies. And the two men were still standing in the parking lot, standing next to a big pickup truck and smoking cigarettes. But then as I was on my way over to them to introduce myself as a fellow member of the cartel, I noticed a van sitting across the street with two men in the front seat both wearing sunglasses, and one of them was holding a camera with a great big lens. But when he saw me looking, he quickly lowered it. So I realized right away who these men were. These were the federal agents who were looking for the Crow Chief. 
They must have finally realized that the crew chief wasn't in San Francisco at all, but rather here in Mexico, as I had brilliantly surmised months before them. How they figured it out, I don't really know. Probably an informant or a mole or something from the cartel. Maybe I should look into that. But, well, anyway, after seeing the feds, I hurried over to the two cartel members, and I said, Guys, I'm in the cartel, too. I was just here to pick up some cartel supplies, and I was on my way out to introduce myself when I noticed the feds are watching us from across the street. They're probably assuming that since we're in the cartel that we know something about the Crow Chief. I assume that these men stared at you like a madman, like you were a madman. No, not at all. They said, You know the Crow Chief? Wait, they actually said the name the Crow Chief. You didn't just assume, or... Well, I mean, when they say it, it sounds like the Crew Chief, but that's just because of their Mexican accents. But anyway, when they heard that the feds were watching them, they told me to jump in the truck, and since we were working for the same organization, I happily did that, especially since I'd had to walk all the way to the store from Cody's apartment anyway. And then we raced out of the parking lot with squealing tires and everything, and the feds tried to follow us. But Patricide knows all the shortcuts and back alleys in Des Moines, so we lost them Wait, easily. Wait, hold on, hold they... on. His... Patricide, that's his name? Yes, but I assume it means something different in Spanish. In any event, I doubt that Patricide actually murdered his own father. Although I haven't met his father either, so I can't really confirm that one way or another. Wait, all right, and you said... Okay, these cartel guys know the Crow Chief, but they call him the Crew Chief. No, they call him the Crow Chief because that's what his name is. It just sounds like the Crew Chief because they have accents. And they know him quite well because he's actually the leader of the cartel in this whole region, as I said before. Didn't he only escape from prison a couple of months ago? How could he already be the leader of a cartel, even in Des Moines? Drent, he is a very intelligent man, and he's one of the finest crow trainers in the world. Can you imagine how powerful a cartel with an entire army of highly trained crows at its disposal would be? Mark my words, Drent, the government is going to regret falsely convicting the crow chief of murder and sending him down the path of a life of crime when a cloud of drug-toting crows blots out the sky and they... So you've actually seen the crow chief, Grang, in Des Moines? Well, no, not yet. Because after we lost our tail, Cornwallis called ahead to the main cartel compound to warn the Crow Chief that the feds were looking for him. So he immediately jumped in a car and took off to go into hiding before we got there. He's going to lay low for a few weeks and then he'll be back. Cornwallis, patricide, and Cornwallis? Yes, again, Drent, they're Mexican. The names Drent and Greg probably sound weird to them, too. Greg. And they just accepted that you were a member of the cartel because... Why? Because you pointed out the FBI agents? Well, yeah, that, and because I told them that I'd spent a few weeks with the Crow Chief a few months back, and they were like, oh, so you're from another branch of the cartel, and you're here to warn the Crow Chief that the feds are after him. And I said, yeah, more or less, and to get the login information, which seemed to confuse them a bit, but they accepted it. But you're not (laughs) from another branch of the cartel, Grang. You were wasting time on a stupid school board campaign in Croton, and then you were wasting time running errands for burnouts. Those burnouts, as you call them, Drent, are the other branch of the cartel. Although I have to say, I was mistaken about their place in the cartel hierarchy. It turns out that they're actually pretty low on the totem pole. Low enough that none of the other guys here seem to know who they are. 
but absolutely hideous tells me that keeping the different branches ignorant of each other's names and operations is a security measure installed by the Crow Chief. There's a guy named Absolutely Hideous? Yes, and in this case, there seems to be good reason to think that this one does mean the same in Spanish and English. Wait, so you're actually living with this cartel now, a real cartel in Des Moines. Well, this is the same cartel as before, but yeah, this branch seems to be a lot higher up. For example, there are a lot more weapons around, and there's cocaine and heroin everywhere. And they actually let me on the furniture here. So they're far enough on the wrong side of the law that they feel comfortable flouting some of Mexico's most deeply held social mores. I will say, though, that Teddy and Sammy seem to miss the other branch. The lifestyle in that apartment was much more to their liking. Wait, so what are you doing? You're just hanging out at an actual drug cartel headquarters waiting for the Crow Chief to come out of hiding and come back so you can ask him for the login information? Yeah, exactly. You're understanding much better than usual this month, Trent. All right, you're going to get killed, Grang, or arrested. I'm actually pretty nervous that you're telling me about this. Well, don't worry, Drant. I'm on very good terms with the Crow Chief. He's not going to let anything bad happen out of all doors. All right, you are the reason he was falsely convicted of a murder. No, the reason was because of our incompetent and corrupt justice system. Besides, I told you it was an errant shot from a hunter that killed Adam. Well... I don't want to go through all that again. I'm just saying this sounds like the worst situation you've gotten yourself into yet. I'm shocked the cartel is letting you talk about them in a in in public at an internet cafe. Oh, they don't know I'm here. I mean, I come and go as I please. They know I'm close to the crow chief, though, and so I just do whatever I want. There's not much going on with the cartel right now anyway. They're just lying low as long as the feds are watching us. Greg, if they find out you're saying all this stuff on the show, they're going to think you're a mole. I mean, come on. They're not going to listen out of all doors, Drent. No offense. I mean, not unless you start doing a segment on selling drugs and killing people and stuff. All right, Greg, well, I'm getting pretty nervous, so I'm going to hang up now. Uh, Hold on, Drent. Hold on. I've got an idea for a segment I can do once I get the password and stuff for you. It's called Deadly Secrets of the Des Moines Cartel, and basically it's just a tell-all expose of all the illegal stuff the cartel does. You know, who does it, who their contacts are, which powerful people they've paid off. No, Greg, you'll get us all killed. Bye. Bye. This month, Gentleman's Mills is highlighting products designed for the urban-dwelling, out-of-all-doorsman and out-of-all-doorswoman. Just because you live in a city doesn't mean you have to be a slicker thereof. Number one, deer and game camera. Deploy these wildlife cameras throughout your apartment to remotely monitor whether deer are walking around Junior's crib while he sleeps, whether the nanny brings over deer while you're away, and whether any deer witnesses observe your house's most active burglars. Number two, the dove train. Release these lovely doves on the train. Number three, running on imp tea. This tea is devilishly caffeinated in order to help you outwork others in the rat race. Number four, combination bow tie slash bear spray canister. 
Now you can look sleek and be safe at the same time. This 100% silk bow tie comes equipped with a bear spray canister contained within. If ever you happen upon a bear in the city, simply untie the tie and save your life. Note, canister may spray unexpectedly due to moderate jostling. Number five, duck blind for commuters. Get on the early morning bus, train, or ferry and set to work erecting this duck blind, setting out your decoys, and enabling your quack noise makers. Please set all of this up at least several feet away from the door out of respect for other passengers. Number six, Hun Henry the 110. This poultry descendant of Attila the Hun made his way from Mongolia to the American countryside before taking a job in the city. Number seven, Urban Rucksack. It's a briefcase with shoulder straps, customers. Number eight, Blonde Hog. This pet is an urbanized sow, shipped with a high-quality wig and a 40-year supply of grooming implements. Number nine, Dugong Cycle. When you're missing your old country home, hop on Dugong Cycle. Rev the engine, peel some rubber. The wind in your hair will bring your mind back to simpler days of riding your rich neighbor's Dugong after cross-country practice. Number 10, Room of Kelp Theme Party. Guests must bring their tanks and their mouth regulators. It's scuba party time. Try not to let too much kelp flop into the apartment hallway when entering the party via the front door. Take the plunge into this tactile 3D urban party experience. Number 11, the Eaglet, the Egret, and the Egalitarian. A Gentleman's Mills 3-pack. Position this clever trio in a hip coffee shop and marvel and delight as the eaglet and the egret squeak in response to the egalitarian's attempts to rope them into a debate on whether affirmative actions unlevel college acceptance standards in a way propagate the systemic racial disadvantages they aim to aid. And other three-way conversations. Meet up or beat up. This is number 12. Stand at the corner of State and Lake and pass out these butterfly ballots. They're impossible to fill out correctly, so even though everyone prefers the first option, that being the meet-up option, you're guaranteed to be able to unleash some thorough poundings, because most folks accidentally select the second option, beat-up. Number 13, Fur-Gone Conclusion. These PETA-approved furless, skin-only, coats and hats let you wear the outdoors without killing the darn things and being fashionable all the while. Skins have been conditioned many times, but some stench remains. Check out our latest arrival, the Carrion Carrion. Number 14, Predators, Birds of Prey, P-R-A-Y. These cassock-clad falcons are the perfect way to bring the outdoors to church. Listen as the well-trained raptors squawk through various litanies and eat their fair share of communion bread. Or maybe a little more than their fair share. <laughs> Birds of prey will also steal a choir leader's hairpiece to comical effect. Number 15, Iota of Dirt Platinum Edition. Sealed in a crushed velvet bag with gold engraving, this single speck of dirt can be taken with you on any city adventure to remind you of the cold running brooks, lush green trees, and yes, the soft, soft dirt of nature. Always remember, always dirt. Number 16, the Not Fraud Announcer. Never be mistaken for a city slicker again. We've dressed an African gray parrot like a golden eagle that rides on your shoulder as you walk around the city, letting urban passers-by know you're really a nature lover. The parrot slash eagle shrieks, I'm just visiting. How do I get out of this concrete jungle? I don't actually live here. These buildings are tall like trees, and you wouldn't last a day in the wild in those heels. And number 17, Total Recall Back to Nature Edition. The DVD case is wrapped in a single vine.
Hi, listeners. I'm the Dandy. On the topic of Gentleman's Mills products for urban dwellers, I'm proud to introduce the Gentleman's Moving Service. Ready to move out to the country? Have an out-of-state boyfriend or girlfriend? Rare job opening in your field? One in two decades for your small town? Roommate caught you stealing? Neighborhood snitch see you mouthing cuss words from the other side of the bus window? Back up the truck! Unload some fun while we load up your belongings and get you out of town. Quick. Trust us. You want gentlemen moving you who get it. 10% price discount offered for unsupervised moving of your valuables. Build a nice sandwich to keep us motivated. We ask for two incentive bites for a fast move time. One incentive bite requested for no breakage. May I please say cuss words when challenges reveal themselves, at least at the quoted number of bites? One compliment bite if we're groomed and drug-free. And I don't mean a complimentary bite. I mean it includes one compliment and one bite of that tasty sandwich. And listen, here's a guarantee you won't hear anywhere else. If you catch me stealing, I'll provide you with a sandwich bite. Gentlemen's Mills Moving Service. Letting someone load a truck with your belongings and drive it places the way it's supposed to be. Easy, convenient, and fun. Hello everyone, and welcome to Regarding the Dawn. My name is Cousin Ben, and this is Dwayne Leesman. Howdy! This is a segment about outdoor photography, and we are nature photographers par excellence. And today, we <laughs> have uh, we have a great show. We are going to teach you all how to... <laughs> Take photos of without. <laughs> all right, what's so funny? Uh, <clears throat> what do you mean? Oh come on! You are giggling your head off. What's so funny? Why are you laughing? Are you laughing at the French words again? Oh oh no! I I have no idea what you mean. Nothing's funny. All right, fine, fine. If nothing's funny, and which I'll just go on now, shall I? Of course. Why wouldn't you go on? You tell me, Dwayne. And I'm telling you. Go right ahead. All right. So. Today, we are going to teach you how to shoot with your underwear on. See, all right, what's so funny? Why are you laughing? What? I, I'm laughing about the underwear. That's, that's funny. No, it is not. And that's precisely why I know something is up. That is a joke that only a five-year-old would laugh at. Now, spill the beans. What is so funny? Oh, fine. I, I'm just excited. About, excited about what? Oh, uh, I have a surprise for you, and, and I can't wait to see your reaction. Oh, no, no, no. I do not like surprises, and I do not like it when... Oh, uh, aren't you going to answer that? No. Well, why not? Because I don't want to find out that your stupid hatchet was a boomerang in disguise, and it's just now gotten around to coming back to get me. <laughs> what are you talking about? Don't, don't be ridiculous. I'm not opening that door. You hired a Lithuanian clown to kill me with a chainsaw or a, a pickle fork or something, and I'm not falling for it. Oh, come on. I would never pay someone to do something I could just do myself for free. What? What? Wait. Here, let me get the door for you. No, 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 don't! Hello? Stay back! I know Tai Chi! Hello, I'm Ansel Adams. <laughs> what? No, no, you're not. Uh, yes, I am. Look, look, you kook, I don't know what Dwayne here told you, but you need to keep taking your meds. That's why they call them dailies. And you need to make sure that you never... Oh, have... come on, Ben. Isn't it uncanny? What? How he could be a twin to Ansel Adams. Not even close. Ah, oh, dude, come on. It's, it's, it's perfect. Uh, guys? Look, 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 what is going on here? Did you guys split the price of a bag of shrooms and, and watch a PBS special on Ansel or something? Because 
This is stupid. What? No. Man, I, I can't believe you aren't more excited to meet your favorite outdoor photographer in what? person. What? Who told you that Ansel was my favorite, huh? Spit it out. Who was it? Hey, Ansel, hey, oh, easy, man. Let go of me. I, 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 look, I thought... I heard you say something about him once. I just, I thought, you know, everyone else loves the guy. Yeah, thought, well, well I'm not everyone. And don't you ever say that again, you hear uh, me? Guys, hey. What? what? Did, are we done here? Can I go now? I mean, Dwayne, he clearly is not into this, okay? So you probably aren't going to record me on the podcast after all, right? Well, what? So, Why would we put you on the podcast? Well, I just thought it'd be pretty awesome to have a world-famous nature photographer on the show, and, and I You just, do know that he isn't Ansel Adams, right? We, I mean, we covered this pretty thoroughly No, already. that's not the point. I mean, th- <clears throat> this is Patrick, and he is a professional artist impersonator. Impersonation I, artist. That's what I said. No, you said that... Wait, wait, I'm, so you just thought that we would have this guy on, and he would fake be Ansel Adams, even though Ansel is dead, and you would try to... No, just, no, 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 no. <sighs> I just thought since this guy was a pro, he'd be so good that people would like to hear it and, and we could, you know, ask the dead guy questions and he could kind of, you know, answer from the grave. We could do a bit, you know? Dude, I don't even think anyone listening has ever heard a recording of well, Hazel talking, so... It I wouldn't mean, have mattered anyway. I thought you said you were a pro. You didn't fool Ben for a second. You suck at this. Look, I do impersonations. I'm an impersonation artist. But I specialize in impersonation of famous celebrities that, you know, people recognize. I don't do impersonations of artists that no one's ever heard speak. Oh, and that come actually, on. You're, you're just bad at this. I'm with him. I can't believe you can pay the bills with this gig. I mean, any old drunk guy can pretend to be somebody. Hey, impersonation is a legitimate form of performance art with and... <laughs> Art? Oh, oh, man. Give me a break, dude. Look, look. I don't have to sit here and I don't... Ooh, look oh, at God. me. I'm an artiste. I can pretend to be someone. Woo. <laughs> like, who can't do that? Okay, okay, okay. Uh, who am I? <clears throat> I'm Ansel Adams. Hey, you're Patrick. Bingo! Total <laughs> oh, travesty. Oh, oh, me next, me next. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> Bonjour, je suis Francis. You're, you're a French guy. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You gotta be kidding me. Yeah. Okay. See, this clearly isn't an art. Any clown clearly. can pretend to be someone. Oh. Okay. Okay. Try this one. Impersonation is a problem of persons, not nations. And also, sometimes nations of persons present problems equally as impersonal. Frankly, that is awful. Frank. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, here we go. Make me an offer on my stinky ottoman. Seriously. Squall! Oh, was it too obvious? <laughs> okay, you guys just can't say things about them. You need to actually... All right, all right, all right. As I crept up on the impersonator Patrick, I saw he has an ego that is many times the size of his body, and he mistakenly believes himself to be an artist. Oh, and here's a drawing of him. Oh, the saint! Yes! Hey! <laughs> <laughs> Hello, listeners. And the corpse of my girlfriend who is obviously dead and wrapped in plastic under my porch. No, no, no. Harrison's more like this. Hello, listeners, and my imaginary girlfriend who never really existed. Uh, uh, No, 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 wait, man. you you got to add more spineless sniveling in there like this. Well, you would be the expert on spineless sniveling, but it's not that... that, What's that supposed to mean? Oh, come on. Like, Harrison was any stretch of the imagination for you. You two are both basket cases. Oh, yeah? Well, well, now it's time for the top five people who are really, really terrible at impersonations. Oh, look, 
Positions one through five are all Cousin Ben. Wow, I barely recognize that you were supposed to be Matt Martin. Let me just get my wallet out and give you $20 for some impersonation lessons. Oh, wait, it looks like Bigfoot has stolen all of my money. Well, Eldon Langley, mayhaps if you perceive with all your perceptionations more accurately environs you could find yourself now deposited into, you would have accurately perceived yonder large feats holding their strategical meanderings to pluck your pockets of pence, and also perhaps would have managed some semblance of competency in mimicry, you ineffectual skulker. Oh ho! Well, Matt Martin, who reads Felton House books, you see, Leesman, I can clearly see with my superior sleuthing skills that you are without any impersonation skills, and to prove that, I will now go undercover in a militant impersonation cult to ferret out the login and password to you Well, your- Green, your per- impersonations are just as devoid of merit as your podcast segment ideas. And if you will just excuse me, I have to go undercover with a militant cult of non-bathers to sort out their crazy philosophy. Cayman, are you okay? I mean, it's like you're a totally different person. I mean, you don't sound anything or even act anything like yourself. I couldn't even recognize you. Perhaps you've gotten confused and you don't remember who you are. Maybe you are lost. You need to find your way back to your true self. Here, follow the sound of my whistling home. Good grief, Ghostback Queen. Do you want a drink of water or something? You sound like you ate two or three jars of peanut butter and then had to wire your jaw shut. Speaking of wiring jaws shut, that is exactly what I plan to do to these two stains on my beloved podcast's pristine record. Even though they are the best thing on the podcast, I will stop at nothing to censor them out of my jealousy. Ha ha! Adam! Wrong! Jason! Wrong! Casey! Huh, well, uh... Fine, then maybe you guys would like to hear my new song. It's all about rocks and nature and living in my sister's basement and slamming her face through a Prius windshield, and it's set to the tune of Van Halen's masterpiece, Hot for Teacher. Oh, 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 that's how it's going to be. Well, maybe one of you kind sirs can help me. I seem to be a poet photographer who doesn't write poetry and whose photographs are all conveniently in another country and am unable to prove that I'm even slightly proficient with a camera. Why, you no-good folk singing. Okay, look, guys, the point on impersonating people is to make sure the audience knows who you are actually impersonating. Both of you guys are failing miserably. Well, I'm clearly failing better than he is. That's not what well, I'm Well, trying. maybe we should just let the listeners decide who is the better impersonator. Great idea, Mr. Seal his own fate. Listeners, if you think... Wait, that- wait. You guys are recording this now? Uh, duh. It's a podcast. Yeah, yeah. I got that. But isn't it supposed to be about photography? What do you mean, supposed to be? I... Well, I haven't heard one word about photography so far. Dude, unlike you, we are professionals. This is all about photography. What? How? Stand back, amateur. Watch how it's done. Ben? Thank you, Dwayne. Ahem. Listeners, today we have learned how you must always create unique photographs and never try to copy another person's art because any clown can copy others' art. I'm not getting paid, am I? Close your right eye, close your left eye, 
Maintain the closedness of both eyes as you lie down and relax. You find yourself at the base of an enormous skyscraper of glass and steel stretching up into the heavens, its top shrouded in fog or clouds, or perhaps there is no top, perhaps it stretches upward infinitely, or perhaps it connects to the surface of the moon, and if you were standing next to it while on the surface of the moon, you would consider that end its base and this end its top. But most likely, this skyscraper has a conventional top way up high above you, and your intention is to scale the outside of the building using suction cups attached to your feet and hands like some sort of man with spider-esque qualities until you reach that top and can therefore claim to be the first person to truly conquer the ultimate edifice which is the name that was bestowed upon the building by the architect who designed it. An architect whose previous and only other project was a shed he built from a kit that collapsed when he bumped his weed eater against it. Yes, he truly outdid himself when he designed the ultimate edifice. Some believe he had outside help. That he couldn't have designed the ultimate edifice by himself without help from his parents, for example, or help from a much better architect. But the designing and naming of the building don't concern you. Where the ultimate edifice came from does not concern you. It's here now, and in that way it's no different from you, because you are also here. Pedestrians walk past, lost in their own thoughts, heedless of you in your suction-cupped hands and feet, heedless of the assurance emanating from you in waves, the confidence of the foregone conclusion. You have already made it to the top, you just haven't made it to the top yet. With a suction-y sound, squirch, you hop against the ultimate edifice's lowest window on its lowest story, and you stick there, 12 inches off of the ground, one foot. But you have begun, and already you feel separated from those walking past you with their feet touching the ground, the cars and trucks driving past with their tires on the ground, because your feet are not on the ground. Then, with alternating popping and scorching sounds, you proceed upward, suction-cupping your way to the second story, then the third. And now some pedestrians are noticing you, but you have left them behind. You are no longer of them, for you are crawling up the outside of the ultimate edifice's fourth story now, making excellent time, the suction cups doing a highly adequate job of preventing you from falling to a splattery death on the pavement below. You lose count of what story you're on. You could climb all the way back down, start over, and keep better count, but no, that would take too long and be too tiring. That's not a good solution. The better solution is to not care what story you're on because your goal is to climb all the way to the top regardless of how many stories up that is and knowing the number of stories you've climbed so far doesn't really do anything to help. You continue upward but you can't help but guess that the story you're currently on is the 15th story because you know for sure that the story you were previously on was the 14th story. Pop scorch, pop scorch, pop scorch, pop scorch, pop scorch, pop scorch, pop scorch. Those are the sounds of you popping suction cups off of the glass exterior of the ultimate edifice and then scorching them back on as you climb. From inside the ultimate edifice, someone taps on the glass. It's a woman in a business meeting dress and a business meeting hat and she's wearing a manager's ID tag and a casual Friday tinfoil bracelet. You pause in response to her tapping. Go down, she says, her voice so muffled by the glass that you can easily understand her but her voice sounds a little muffled. I can't go down, you say. I'm trying to get to the top of the building, and the top is up, not down. So if I were to go down, I would actually be getting farther from the top, not closer. I'll call the police, says the woman. Oh, that would be nice, you say. They'll probably appreciate that. What are you going to talk about with them? About them making you get down, says the woman. 
Oh no, you cry, and you pop scorch your way hurriedly upward, hoping the woman was just bluffing, hoping that when she calls the police she talks to them about sports or politics or their families or something. Also, this is all relaxing and therapeutic. That's still our goal with visualization exercises, of course, and it always will be. That's a promise that we don't take lightly, and while we don't want to fall back into the cycle of defensiveness that characterized the visualization exercises for months on end, we do feel that it's important for our listeners to understand that we know what we're doing, and we're doing it on purpose for a great multitude of valid reasons. A few stories up, you again hear tapping on the glass coming from within the ultimate edifice. It's the same woman as before, and now she's showing you her cell phone. She's showing you that the number 911 has already been dialed and that her index finger is hovering over the call button. The threat could not be clearer to you. If you assign letters to each of the numbers in 911, you get IAA, or the International Acrobats Association. She's saying that if you don't go back down right away, then she's going to call the IAA and take steps to get you inducted into the International Acrobats Association. An organization with absolutely crippling membership dues that only the very wealthiest of acrobats can afford. And the only way out of the International Acrobats Association is to die in a fall from a trapeze. If you die in any other way, you're still considered a member of the association and you're still expected to pay your dues. Although they'll have a tough time collecting if you don't, but they once had a member who died of carbon monoxide inhalation who then stopped paying his dues, so the association has been keeping track of what he owes them for decades, and yeah, it's in the millions. Anyway, the threat sends a chill up your spine. In some ways, you'd actually much prefer that she just dial 911 and have the cops come try to get you down. But you can't be dissuaded now. You're almost into the clouds. The top could just be a few pop scorches away. You say, please don't alert the acrobats, and you pop scorch upward with renewed enthusiasm. You're in the clouds now. You can no longer see the ground below you, nor what lies ahead of you. Within the ultimate edifice, you can see people in cubicles, people in offices, entire floors that are vacant and devoid of all but microscopic life. You pass a floor where the employees are whipping each other with towels, a floor where farm animals stand staring at you with their hot breath fogging the glass, an utterly tasteless floor. A floor where a guard stands in each window to scold any employee who they see looking at you as you pass by. A floor where the employees work in spiracles. A floor where everyone's a boss. A floor in open mutiny. A floor of skeletons with no entrances or exits. A floor of nerds nerding out over some nerd stuff. A floor of jocks nerding out over some nerd stuff. A floor where each employee sits on her own individual sectional sofa instead of a chair. A floor of spare elevators. A misplaced mailroom, a floor of millennials in the workplace, a floor of certain distinction, a floor of darkness, a floor of stillness, a classic arcade floor, and then a regular floor with the same woman tapping on the glass again. She has the phone to her ear. I have the police on the phone right now, she says, and they're sending World War I era fighter planes to shoot you down like King Kong. Ha! You laugh. You mean ding dong? No, says the woman, King Kong was the giant ape who climbed the Empire State Building and got shot down. You remember that she's correct and blush. But I'm almost to the top, you say. Don't the police want me to succeed? I'll ask them, says the woman through the glass. She appears to be talking on the phone, but she's too quiet for you to hear. Then she says, no, they say they want you to fail. Pop scorch, pop scorch, pop scorch, pop scorch, pop scorch, pop scorch, pop scorch. Moving very quickly now. You hear the drone of old fighter planes coming for you their propellers tearing the clouds to ribbons before them. They'll soon be upon you, they'll soon be shooting. 
And if they shoot and kill you, will your body stay affixed to the side of the ultimate edifice by the suction cups, hanging off the side of the building up among the clouds, decomposing where only the employees of this particular story can see you and pay their daily respects to you? This thought drives you onward, upward, and then you find yourself with no more glass to which you can scorch. There is only a steel edge to grab, to pull yourself up and over, onto the roof of the ultimate edifice. You've done it. You've conquered it. You've scaled the outside of the ultimate edifice with suction cups affixed to your hands and feet. And not even one average nosy woman with a cell phone could stop you. Not even with help from her friends, the police, who did not find you in time to shoot you down. You later learn that the police in the fighter plane saw you, but they mistakenly thought they were looking for a giant ape, so they didn't shoot at you. You collapse onto your back, suction cups pointing skyward, and think to yourself, I wish suction cups could stick to the sky. And now, as you return to the RL portion of the acronym IRL, and go about your regular L portion of the acronym IRL this month, Take the peace of surviving a difficult challenge because you aren't mistaken for a giant ape with you, even when you're inside one or more doors. Thank you for listening to the 28th episode of Out of All Doors. I'm Adam Drent, and I would like to thank Matt Martin, Andy Poppenfuss, Casey By, Grang Lynch, Chris Nichols, Ben Bird, Cayman Bird, Patrick McKinney, and Aaron Eikenberry for their contributions, written, audible, and technical. And thanks to Casey By, Chris Nichols, and J.J. Evans for making all the music used in the show. If you'd like to get in touch for any reason, you can send emails to the show at outofalldoors at gmail.com or me personally at adamdren at gmail.com. You can also call or text me at 574-518-1983. I'd love to hear from you. And I'm active on Twitter, too. I'm at HugePop. Here's another thing I'd love. If you went on iTunes and rated this podcast, maybe wrote a review, maybe even subscribed. And be sure to check out my website, hugepop.com, where you can find links to my other projects, including Bedtime Stories, One Man's World, and the music I make as the mispronouncer. Bedtime Stories and One Man's World are also on iTunes if you search for them under podcasts, and you could rate and review those, too. And the Bedtime Stories app is also available for all smart-style phones. And also, extra thanks to Chris Nichols for putting all the previous episodes of Out of All Doors and One Man's World on YouTube. They're at the channel Huge Pop, written as one word. We'll be back in a month with episode 29 of Out of All Doors.